Thank you for downloading from the Great Commission Society. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. You can find out more about our global ministry and team at www.greatcommissionsociety.com. A sinister story is told of a man who sold his house for an incredible bargain with just one stipulation. He would retain ownership of one small nail protruding over the door. After several years, he wanted the house back, but the new owner was unwilling to sell it. So the first owner went out, found the carcass of a dead dog, hung it from the single nail he still owned. Soon the house became unlivable, and the family was forced to sell the house to the owner of the nail. If we leave even one small sin in our life, Satan will hang his rotting garbage on it. Or suppose you had a thousand acre farm, and someone offered to buy it. You agreed to sell the land except for one acre right in the centre which you want to keep for yourself. Did you know that in some areas the law would allow you to have access to that one lone spot? And furthermore, you would have the right to build a road across the surrounding property in order to get to it. Well, so it is with us as Christians. If we make less than 100% surrender to God, we can be sure that the devil will take advantage of any inroads to reach that uncommitted area of our lives. One of the most alarming trends in today's society is the death of the concept of sin. As the morals in our culture deteriorate, how can Christians respond? Hello and welcome to our GCS podcast with author and evangelist Tony Anthony. Many people understand the feeling of guilt, but until they understand sin, they will not be ready for a savior. Sin is the greatest problem facing the world. But how can we define what sin is to a postmodern generation? Let's join Tony as he defines sin and examines the difference between cheap and radical repentance. The greatest trigger for change in a Christian's heart is when he determines to move closer to God. And this is why we need a better explanation of sin for postmodern people. We read in 1 John chapter 1 verses 8 to 9, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The story is told of an old man in Arkansas who was a compulsive sharpshooter. He would take pot shots at anything in sight. A skilled marksman following his trail was surprised always to find a bullseye. Wherever he went, he found signs of the sharpshooter's exploits, a barn door, ranch fencing, or wherever, there was always a circle traced in white chalk, and right in the centre, a bullet hole. This impressed the observer immensely. Meeting up with the old man, he complimented him on his superb marksmanship. The sharpshooter made light of it, though, and with a wave of his hand, he dismissed it. It's easy, he said. I just shoot first, and then draw a circle afterwards. Well, like the sharpshooter, many people today try to define sin on their own terms and then draw a circle around it to shut out God's truth. Christians who want to experience Christ-empowered living must open themselves up to God's scrutiny and practice a lifestyle of confession and repentance. For this to happen, though, we need a change to take place in our personality. All kinds of theories are out there about how change can come about, but the greatest trigger of all for change in a Christian's heart is when he determines to move closer to God, is when they move into a restored relationship with God. Now, there are at least three issues that need to be understood in order to experience this change. A clear understanding and awareness of sin, a willingness to own up to the reality of sin in one's life, and a turning away from sin through real and radical repentance. 
One of the alarming trends in today's society is the death of the concept of sin. It was Cornelius Plantinga Jr. in his book, The Breviary of Sin, who says, The awareness of sin used to be our shadow. Christians hated sin, feared it, fled from it, grieved over it. But the shadow has dimmed. Nowadays, accusation you have sinned is often said with a grin, isn't it? With a tone that signals some sort of inside joke. At one time, this accusation still had the power to jolt people. Catholics lined up to confess their sins. Protestant preachers rose up to confess our sins. And they did it regularly. You know, modern day living has shaped the human and even to some degree the Christian concept of sin itself. Our self-deception about our sin acts as a narcotic, a tranquilizing and disorienting suppression of our spiritual nervous system. And because of the lack of awareness of sin in the human race, now a saviour is seen as quaint in today's world. You see, when we lack an ear for the wrong notes, we can't play the right ones or recognise them in the performance of others. We become so non-musical that we miss the exposition and recapitulation of the main themes which God plays in human life. The music of creation leaves us with no catch of our breath. Mere beauty begins to now bore us. And that's the society we live in today. So what is sin? Well, the Bible presents the concept of sin in an array of different images. Missing a target, wandering from the path, straying from the fold, blindness, deafness, overstepping a line to reach the goal that God has set for our lives. And personally, I don't think we can comprehend the nature of sin until we see its self-centeredness. You know, that ego occupying the place that God has reserved for himself. Maybe the best way to understand what sin is about is just chop off the first and the last letters and you'll be left with I, which has been called the perpendicular pronoun. You know, see the letter in your imagination and raise it to cosmic proportions in your mind. See it standing tall and stiff and starched. And that's what sin is. The ego standing proud and defiant in face of the universe saying, I don't want anyone else telling me what to do. I want to live life the way I want. You know, it would be a challenging thing, wouldn't it, to ask ourselves the question how the following types of sins represent the self-centred ego in charge. You know, whether it's cheating on taxes or padding out expense reports or inventing an excuse for being late or just taking the credit for somebody else's work. You know, if I were to look at the human personality from a three-dimensional point of view, it would consist of body, soul and spirit. Sin is self at the centre rather than God. So many Christians see sin in terms of adultery or things like fornication, lying, stealing, cheating and murder and so on. But sin is it's so much more subtle than that, uh, as well as obvious. Sin is pushing God out of the centre, the controlling part of our lives, which he designs to be inhabited by himself. And so you and I have been invaded by a principle called pride, which wants to maintain our independence and really refuses to yield control to another, the other being God himself. And that principle of pride, if pushed to its nth degree, reveals the depravity that is in our hearts and spotlights what pride did to the Son of God. The cross sought to turn him out of the very universe he created. You see, sin is not just conscious hostility to God. It's also the relegation of God to irrelevance. I doubt there'll be too many people out there who consciously are hostile to God. But so many of us relegate him to the margin of our lives. We live independently of him until a crisis develops, and that's when we then attempt to put him back into the centre again. And how sad is that? Although we are Christians, we can still allow our thinking to drift towards the notion that our security, our self-worth and significance depends on our performance and accomplishments. 
How often do we tend to search for a deeper level of confidence than God? Something we can see, something we can touch, something other than the invisible God. Very often we pay lip service to the fact that Christ is the source of satisfaction, yet we continue to drink of lukewarm, bacteria-infected wells of our own making because we like to live independently of God and be in control of the water that we drink. And such action as this relegates God to irrelevance. Now let me pick up on the second concept, a willingness to own up to the reality of sin in our lives. The term we use for this is confession. We see King David in the Old Testament put it like this. We read in Psalm 32 verse 5, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And I think an important point to emphasize here is that, you know, general confessions that are vague and unspecific, they're not worthy of very much at all. One of the characteristics of classic revival is that in revival, people begin to confess specific sins. During one revival in the UK, in the middle of the last century, a young man stood up in a prayer meeting and said, Lord, it is so much humbug when we say we have sins. Our hands are unclean. I have sinned. My hands are unclean. Forgive me. Oh, forgive me. And at this point, he broke down in tears and soon others followed, confessing specific sins that were going on in their lives. An old English proverb says, confession's good for the soul. You know, an old Puritan preacher said, we must own our sin in order that we may disown it. When we're ready to uncover our sin, then God is ready to cover it. The writer of the book of Proverbs puts it like this in Proverbs 28 verse 13. He who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. I think the Apostle John puts it best when he said in 1 John 1 19, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It may of course be possible for some of us to not be conscious of any great sins in our lives, per se. You know, we may live what we may consider to be good Christian lives, read our Bibles regularly, if not daily, spend time with God in prayer, give to God's work, involve ourselves in good works, refrain from bad habits and so on. But how many of us can honestly say that we find security, self-worth and significance in Him? You know, sin is subtle. Please be reminded of that. We can pass all the tests on the outside, but easily pass over misplaced dependency on the inside. As we said before, the root of sin is pushing God out of the part he made for himself. And I, for one, do not believe that our lives will come together in the way God desires until we admit that far too often we run our lives on our own terms and our own way. You know, my security, my self-worth and significance are things I want to establish myself rather than trusting God with them. One of the biggest challenges in our lives is engaging God around the issues of security, self-worth and significance. You know, it's possible for other sins to be absent in our lives, but for the root of it, misplaced dependency to be lying right there in the very centre. You know, to what extent is misplaced dependency a problem for you? If you can give some due considerations of different areas of your life, for example, providing for your family or finding a better job or managing your expenses or managing your time, choosing your friends, choosing your entertainment, whereabouts would you be on that in terms of dependency on God? You see, the principle of pride presence in every one of our hearts. If taken to its nth degree, it seeks to dethrone God. If you've got difficulty seeing it in those terms, then consider the cross. 
One of the purposes of the cross is to make us see plainly what is normally hidden, the foulness and deadly nature of the principle of pride. Now, what were those ordinary sins? There was the bigotry of the Pharisees, who hasn't been bigoted. There was the self-seeking of the Sadducees, who hasn't been self-seeking. There was the indifference of the crowd. And tell me, who hasn't been indifferent? Add up all the other ordinary sins that come to mind, and underlying them, you're going to find pride. The desire to put self-interest before God's interest. And of course, we would never have understood what pride could do until we saw what it did on the cross. It would never enter our minds that pride could lead to that situation, but it could and it did. Now, the next word we need to examine is the word repentance. I've been astonished over the years in ministry to see how few Christians understand what true repentance is all about. On a mission to Switzerland, I did a survey among Bible college directors, a group of very mature Christians, just to determine how they understood repentance. And some thought repentance was something we did at conversion, a one-time thing, and never needs to be done again. Others came up with other descriptions of different states of mind that came close to repentance, but only a small minority understood the real meaning of the word itself. Now, perhaps the best way to understand what something is, is to understand what it's not. Well, here's a few thoughts for you. Repentance is not regret. You know, regret is being sorry for oneself, deploring the consequences of one's actions. You know, in the UK, we once had an archbishop by the name William Temple. And before ordaining priests to the Christian ministry, he customarily asked them to define repentance. And one young ordinance said, repentance is a heart broken by sin. Nonsense of the Archbishop. Repentance is a heart that has broken away from sin. It's one thing to regret what has happened, it's another thing to do something about it. Repentance is not remorse. Remorse has been described as sorrow without hope at its heart. The great early church father, Tertullian, said that remorse is an emotion of disgust. Judas was remorseful but refused to return to Christ and ask for forgiveness. Remorse eats its heart out without seeking a new heart. Repentance is not reformation. When they feel the need for change, some people try to achieve it by self-effort. They turn over a new leaf and attempt to become reformed characters. You may remember that in the church of Ephesus, which our Lord addresses in the book of Revelation, he commands them to return to doing their first works. But before saying that, he commanded them to repent. You see, reformation may follow repentance in the sense that we attend to the things that need putting right in our lives, but it can never precede it. And repentance is not reparation, or shall we say making amends. Anyone who truly repents, like Zacchaeus in the Gospels, will seek to make amends to those who they've wronged, when possible and when appropriate. Scripture talks about producing fruit in keeping with repentance in Matthew 3 verse 8. This issue is so often overlooked by some spiritual advisors, but it's clearly a scriptural principle whenever possible to make amends for what we might have done wrong. This, however, is reparation, not repentance. And once again, reparation must follow repentance, not precede it. So what is repentance? The Greek word for repentance is metanoia, meaning after knowledge, as distinguished from pronoia, meaning foreknowledge. The word literally means a change of mind. Many apologies sound sincere, but really have a scapegoat built in. You know, Lord, I'm sorry for what I did wrong, but I was under a lot of pressure. Or Lord, it's, you know, life is difficult. I'll try to do better next time. Or I wish I didn't fall into sin so easily. It's tough out there. You know, we got all these scapegoats. 
they allow for one asking for forgiveness to get off the hook somehow along the line. All of these statements, you know, you know, they're false repentances. True repentance is a demonstrated change. The Christian psychiatrist John White says repentance is a changed way of looking at things. You see, he defines repentance as the shock that comes from seeing reality. It is indeed a shock when you discover that although you are a Christian, you're living independently of the life offered to you in Christ and are attempted to find security, significance and self-worth in things other than Christ. The full realisation of this, brought about through the intervention of the Holy Spirit, can be like an earthquake in the soul. A real earthquake. When talking about repentance, it was C.S. Lewis who said, It's just as it was when you pass it before, but your eyes are altered. You see nothing now but realities. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 2 verse 4, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realising that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? You know, a realisation of God's provision of physical and spiritual resources makes us aware that he alone can provide the security and significance that we long for. When we become aware that we have ignored his sufficiency, we then develop a godly sorrow that brings repentance, as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. So what's involved in an act of repentance? Well, let me take you to a wonderful passage in the book of Hosea, which I believe unfolds for us what is required in repentance very clearly. Just reading from Hosea chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously, that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our hands have made. So, you know, let's just examine that phrase by phrase. You know, return to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall in verse one. You know, sin, it's a movement away from God. And any return to God does require a 180 degree turn back to God. You know, a 90 degree turn is not enough. Repentance, said C.S. Lewis in his book Mere Christianity, is a movement full speed astern. It's not just putting things right, it's coming back into renewed relationship with God. And so the next part of verse 1, your sins have been your downfall. Hosea said you've stumbled because of your iniquity. You know, never tamper with the labels when it comes to sin. No euphemism, it must be called by its proper name, iniquity. To spurn God's grace and rely instead on our own resources is not merely a spiritual infraction, it's iniquity right there. It must be seen in such a way as well. In verse 2, return to the Lord, says Hosea. You know, the scripture now emphasises the fact that once again, that true repentance is returning to a relationship with God. A relationship that's been broken by sin, such as the sin of misplaced dependency. You know, someone has said maturity is where you place your dependency. Repentance enables us to mend our relationship with God through asking for his forgiveness. Again, in verse 2, receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. You know, the purpose of repentance is to restore us to a right relationship with God so that we can worship him in spirit and in truth and draw daily on his grace. In Old Testament days, an animal sacrifice was made to atone for sin. But what God longed for was a sacrifice of praise arising from a realised awareness of forgiveness. You know, where an attitude of thankfulness for sins forgiven is absent, true worship cannot exist. 
We also see in verse 3, where it says, Assyria cannot save us. Assyria had become an international power during Hosea's time, but for the nation to look to them when they needed help rather than putting their trust in God was misplaced dependency. It then goes on to say, we will not mount war horses in verse 3. You see, Israel was expected not to trust in chariots and horses. We also see that in Psalm 20 verse 7. But in the power and provision of the great El Shaddai, the nourisher and sustainer of his people, God himself. And just to finish that off in verse 3, we will never again say our gods to what our hands have made. In other words, the people's confidence was not to be placed in the work of their own hands. You know, it's one thing to enjoy the things our hands have made, it's another thing to worship them. Repentance is a mindset that looks to God for life, not resting on one's expertise or degrees or academic achievements or business acumen. It doesn't mean that we can't enjoy the fruits of our labours, but we can recognise that life is not found in such accomplishments. For to me to live, said Paul, is Christ in Philippians 1.21, not achievement, success or the award of applause of earth. If in that act of drawing near to God, we have within us only the elements of regret or remorse, reformation of reparation, and if we're only sorry that we have lost our peace of mind and not that we have misplaced our dependency, then we've not truly repented. And so as we consider the act of repentance, there are a number of obstacles that can interfere here. First of all is our failure to trust God's love. Instead of basking in the security of his love, we so easily turn to other sources of life to deal with our personal pain, whether other people or other substances, their short-lived help, our failure to believe God's evaluation of our worth. You know, when our worth depends on others' evaluations and estimations of us rather than God's, we also move away from confidence in him. And also when we see no meaning or purpose in our lives, we are beings with a destiny, with a purpose. God has a special purpose for every one of his children, and to refuse to see that is saying to God, you're a liar. And so it's essential to see the difference between what you would call cheap and radical repentance. You know, never be satisfied with cheap repentance, which carries no power. Remember, the root of sin is self-sufficiency, the ego in the place God has reserved for himself. Cheap repentance is lopping off the branches rather than getting rid of the trunk. Are you with me? True repentance requites real openness of heart and mind, a willingness to taste the absurdity of our sin, our false attempts to take control and our desire to remain intact without having to depend on God at all. We must come face to face with the fact that Jesus Christ is not an add-on or a toba boost to an otherwise self-determined life, but the centre. For he really only fits at the centre. That's why it's called a God-shaped hole. Only God can fit in that. So please consider the difference between cheap repentance and radical repentance. So many people have come into the church but have never really experienced radical repentance. They're like the butterflies that lack colour when there's not been much struggle as they emerge from the chrysalis. You know, let's consider a final truth here as well. Repentance should not be an occasional thing in our lives. It ought to be regular. Whenever we feel ourselves moving away from dependency on Christ to lean on other things, we've got to realise this pattern is misplaced dependency and repent of that. Regular self-assessment is really needed here. 
Repentance is actually a lifestyle more than anything else. It's a positive thing. Don't see it as anything negative at all. It's turning towards something good on a regular, if not daily, basis. Repentance is a holy thing. It's the way we deal with our sins and with our wickedness. All serious communication with God begins in repentance. It's the door through which we we come into the Christian life. And it's also the door through which we must pass whenever we find ourselves having moved out of a relationship with him. The church at Ephesus was in trouble with the Lord because they had left their first love, we read in Revelation 2. They were commended by Christ because they were orthodox in their doctrine and efficient in their service. But in our Lord's eyes, that was not enough. Christ chastised them because they had allowed their love for him to lapse. You know, we read, remember the height from which you've fallen, said the Saviour to the Ephesian converts. And then he added, repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Revelation 2 verse 5. You know, why did the Saviour encourage them to repent? Well, had they not done that at the time of their conversion? Of course they did. Repentance must be seen not only as the entrance into the Christian life, but also the means by which we improve our Christian life. I've met many Christians who view repentance as a one-time, one-off experience, something to do at conversion and never expected to do again. And that is fallacy. Repentance is continuous. It's the way we restore our personal relationship with God whenever we find that our relationship has been disrupted. The church at Ephesus despite their spiritual industriousness, had moved away from a close and intimate relationship with the Lord. The only way back was through the door of repentance. We cannot hope to restore a close relationship with God unless we understand what it means to repent. Let's pray together now. Dear Lord Jesus, we love you very much indeed, and we thank you for this day that you made. My Lord, we come to you today and we ask you please to forgive us for so foolishly trying to meet our needs in our own way when we know that you and you alone are to be our supply. We repent of our self-sufficiency and self-centeredness and ask for your forgiveness for our stubborn and arrogant refusal to trust you with our needs for security, significance and self-worth. Please, Lord Jesus, please help us. Please help us from now on to turn to you in daily dependency and to draw from you, the uniquely sufficient God, all that we need to hold our lives together. We say this prayer in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the message. Please subscribe and leave a rating and review to help others find our podcast. At GCS, our mission is to communicate the gospel message relevantly to every person in the world. One way we do this is by providing practical resources to help you grow in your faith and present the Christian faith across different cultures. You can find out more about our resources at www.greatcommissionsociety.com. If you would like to donate to our efforts, be sure to contact us, or you can donate online. GCS is a listener-supported ministry and is chaired by a board of directors in Edinburgh, UK.